This, uh, this week, as well, as you can see, we're going through this series, The Incredible Jesus, if you're new. This is about the miracles of Jesus. And so um, earlier this week, I was, uh, while my kids were getting ready for, for bed, Manny and Elijah were getting ready for bed, I was sitting in Manny's room, and I looked on her bookshelf, and there was a uh, children's book, and it was called The Miracles of Jesus. It's part of a 10-book series on um, Bible, uh, Bible stories. And, and so this one was about the miracles of Jesus. And one of the struggles for me as I was preparing this series is what miracles do I talk about? Do I address? Because there's so many of them and all of them are so important. So which ones do I talk about? That was kind of the challenge for me. So I picked up this children's book and I wanted to see which miracles they talked about. Obviously, they're probably not going to talk about water turning into wine with kids, but what would they talk about? And so I was flipping through it and there's something about knowing the story and reading it in the Bible and then reading it from the perspective of a, a person trying to communicate that to children. And so I was reading through, flipping through, and looking at the pictures. And the pictures, they were of Jesus walking on water, Jesus feeding the crowds of, of thousands of people. And as I was reading this book, uh, not reading it, but looking at the pictures and seeing Jesus walk on the water, it was neat to see how these things that we've talked about began to come alive in a new way as I was looking at it. And as I was flipping through, I, <laughs> I started saying, wow. Wow, as I was, I was looking through it. And so Elijah came to me and said, Daddy, why are you saying wow? And my response to him was because Jesus is really amazing. My question as you think about the miracles of Jesus is how do you respond as you hear the miracle accounts of what Jesus is doing? Because obviously the miracles were not included in the biographies of Jesus for merely exclamation for us to say wow it wasn't merely given for the sake of information either the miracle accounts that god inspired the gospel writers to include were meant to be an invitation to a transformation that jesus is offering to you and to me not only then but he's offering that now not just something that's wow yesterday but something that's wow in the now, as you hear what Jesus has done and the miracles that he performed and that he is God, we recognize that everything that Jesus did 2000 years ago, Jesus is able to do now as well. And so as we hear and as we see and as we look into the miracles, God is inviting us to say, do you believe that I can still do these things today? The things that we sang about water, you turned into wine, opened the eyes of the blind, there's no one like you. He hasn't changed. And so the question that we ask is, how are we responding to the miracles of Jesus? As we've seen, this is the 10th week. We've seen that Jesus is Lord over many different things. And and it's not just that the, the, the writers decided to put in a random compilation of different things to show that the kingdom of God is here. But we've seen patterns and we've seen a, an overall trajectory of what the gospel writers are trying to communicate. We've seen Jesus is Lord over the sea and Jesus is Lord over the storm. He's Lord over sickness and he's Lord over sin. He's Lord over disease. He's Lord over death. And today we're going to see he's Lord over demons and he's Lord over Satan. It's all of these things are painting a picture that Jesus Christ is a king over all of the cosmos and over everything. There's not a square inch in all of creation, as Abraham Kuyper says, that Jesus Christ was Lord, does not cry, mine. He is the king over everything and he wants to be the king over our hearts. 
And that's what the amazing, incredible Jesus is trying to get us to see. Today, we're going to look at an account of Jesus, as I talked about, who is Lord over the demons and Lord over Satan. We're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. So as you're turning there, you understand that Mark was written, and Tim Keller breaks it down this way, to show the first half of Mark is to show that Jesus is the king, and then the second half of Mark is to show that he came for the cross, okay, the king's cross. This is the gospel of Mark. Now, the first half of Mark is meant to explain who Jesus is, And then the second half of Mark is to explain that Jesus came to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So where does that tipping point come? The tipping point comes in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And then he asks, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And for the first time, that which has been implicit, right, that which has been hidden and kind of under the surface, rises to the top, and Peter makes explicit who Jesus is for the first time. And at times when the demons would say, you are the Christ, what do you want? When Jesus said, be quiet, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. But now, starting in Mark chapter 8, the messianic secret, if you will, has become made known. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And from this point on, they've crossed the Rubicon. From this point on, Ministry is going to become increasingly difficult. Opposition will rise. That which was bubbling at the surface rises up, comes in the form of religious leaders, comes in the forms of demons, even in the form of Jesus' own disciples. Opposition to the cross and to the work of God. And from this point forward, Jesus and his disciples' life is getting increasingly difficult. And so the passage that we're going to look at, starting in verse 14, picks up after Jesus has demonstrated his glory on the mountain of transfiguration to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And as they come down from the mountain, they encounter a boy who's being tormented by demons. This is God's word, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John, wait, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out. This kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word. It's fascinating, right? Amazing, amazing passage. Out of 10 weeks that we're looking at these miracles, we've seen already that this is a third one involving a young child. Okay, the first one, the son of a royal official who was dying. The second one, the dead son of a widow at Nain. The third one here, this demon-possessed son of a father. There are countless other ones that we haven't talked about, that we don't have time to talk about, but there are countless other ones. Why are there so many miracle accounts where the tormented is a child? Well, this is a Satan attacking, and obviously one thing is clear, that Satan doesn't fight fair. Children were very important in those days, especially to in the minds of people who believed in God's word. But children were important because in those days, that was such a communal culture and genealogies were so important. The family tree was so important to have a child means that your lineage is continued. That was one of the major reasons. But another reason was financially. And we talked a little bit about this, but there was no social security. There was no pension plan. There was no retirement benefits, none of that stuff, no death insurance, no life insurance. And so financially, the hopes and dreams in the future of a parent was wrapped up in a child. The child would be the one who would take care of their ailing parents, who would give them money, who would feed them through their income, through their finances. They would take care of the child. This is why children were so important. Not only that, when you go into the city, having a lot of children becomes a financial burden on you, right? We know that today. That's why people in the city don't have many kids. But the further out you go into the rural areas, in the farming areas, in the fishing towns, having more children means more hands to bring in more money because they do more work. And so having lots of kids was important at a financial level, at a genealogical level, at a lineage, for all of these reasons. But the problem was making sure that they lived to see the day because half of the kids, 50% of kids would be dead by the age of five. And so the, the, the task of any parent is to make sure that that child becomes a survivor and not a statistic by the time they reach a certain age. And so here... You see this boy being tormented, and the father is in obvious distress. And so he comes to Jesus. Two things we're going to look at. The first thing that we see here, not only in this passage, but for you and for me, is that you have an enemy. You have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. You have an enemy who wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so they come down from the mountain, and they say, Jesus, we need you to take care of this, because there's a demon-possessed child. Uh, I think it was on Thursday night, um, I was reading a bedtime story to the kids. And the one that was reading, it was the one right before, or two books before the miracles of Jesus. And it was called The Baptism of Jesus. And it talks about Jesus being baptized and how after he was baptized, he went into the desert and he was tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights by the devil. And I was reading this to, to the kids. Manny stopped me and she said, Daddy, who's the devil? And I said, the devil is bad. The devil is God's enemy. The devil doesn't like God, and because we're God's kids, he doesn't like us either. The devil is mean. He lies to us. He tells us to do bad things. He tells us to lie. He tells us to not listen to our parents. He tells us to like boys, all kinds of evil things like that. (laughs) He tells us to do. Devil is bad. And so Manny 
I didn't tell her about the, the liking boys part, but I, all these other things. The devil tells us to do bad things. And she said, yuck, I don't like him. I'm not going to listen to him. She was defiant in it. And then Elijah, she, he's listening. He defiantly scrunches up his, the, uh, like furrows his brow. And he says, me either. It's one thing that Elijah and Manny agree upon. That they don't like the devil. And it's one thing that we agree with, with the devil. And we don't like each other. Satan wants to destroy your life and my life. He wants to destroy our children's lives. He wants to destroy and steal and kill. This is his MO. And we don't like him either. One thing the Bible is clear upon is that from the very beginning, there has been a conflict, a spiritual battle that we may not be able to see with our eyes, but is very real. It's very real, right? It's, it's happening in every corner of the world. It's happening every moment of our lives. Even now, it's happening, right? You've heard me say this before, but there's a spiritual battle going on right now. That Satan doesn't want you to hear the word of God that can set you free from the things that bind you. And he will use anything to distract you. He will use a cell phone. He'll use a crying baby. Not that the crying baby is demon possessed, but he will use that to take your attention away from the word of God. He'll use a person walking in late. You ever notice when someone walks in late to service, how many eyes are shifted back there? What, who is that who came in? Why are they wearing that? Why are they so late? Oh my gosh. And they're... All of, all of these questions are gravitated back towards, and in that moment, it's possible that we miss something important that would unlock something that God wants to unlock within our hearts. There is an enemy who is fighting for your attention so that you would not hear what God wants you to hear. There's some people, there's, I counted one, two, three, four people as I was thinking about this message, four people who without fail, whenever the word of God is preached, whenever I stand up here, man, I can see everything, by the way. Some of you don't think I can. I can see everything. There are four people who as soon as we start, within five minutes are always asleep. It's a spiritual thing because I'll talk to them afterwards. I say, hey, Tough night, huh? Long night, huh? Rough night, short night, slept. They say, no, I slept a lot. It's spiritual because there's an enemy who wants to attack, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And it's happening here. And this boy is a picture of how Satan works. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. And so we see that here. You've got this boy. They come down from the mountain. They're arguing because the disciples couldn't cast him out. And the man says he has robbed him of speech, comes to steal, robbed him of speech. So here's this boy. He he can't talk anymore. And and the the context tells us in the original language, doesn't say he's a teenager, doesn't say he's he's a baby either. It says he is not a toddler, but he's probably in the five, six, seven year old range. This was not a fair fight. A lot of times when Satan wants to attack a person, he doesn't attack an adult, but he attacks their children because children aren't mature enough to be able to fight back. They don't have the spiritual wherewithal to fight. That's why a lot of times you see people who are pastors or missionaries, you see their children going off on a wayward path. Why? Because if the enemy cannot attack the parents, he will attack the children. It's not a fair fight. That's why as you pray for James and Lauren, you need to pray for Chloe and Zoe and Phoebe as well. That's why as we pray for our leaders, our workers, our pastors, we have to pray for the children as well. Because the enemy doesn't care. He does. He's not, I want to play by the rules. There are no rules when Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. And so he attacks children because he attacks the parent where it hurts them the most. 
And so you've got this child, he's demon-possessed, he can't talk. It says in verse 18, it seizes him, throws him to the ground, foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. Um, how long has it been like this? From childhood. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to what? Verse 22, to kill him. The intention of Satan is not just to torment, but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You think about this kid and you think about his dad. You think about the dad as he, in his moments of sanity as he puts his kid to sleep. Thinks about all that that boy has been robbed of. It's not only speech. Robbed of a childhood. Robbed of hopes and dreams and joys. Robbed the father of what it means to be a dad. He's relocated to just being a, a hospice care worker for his ailing child. So he watches this kid sleep at night. He sees burn marks on his body. How many times has he rescued him from the lake in which the demon threw him into? How many times has he heard the boy say in his moments of calm, I don't want to live like this anymore. Diabolical and evil our enemy is. And this boy's life is a clear illustration of the way that Satan wants to work. In in Mark chapter 5, I don't know if you remember this this account. Mark chapter 5, there's a demonized man at the region of Gerasenes, right? He's tied up and he breaks through the chains. He cuts himself. And when Jesus confronts him, he says, my name is Legion, for we are many, right? Legion, a Roman legion of, of soldiers. It's not just one or two demons, there's many demons in him. And so when Jesus commands the demon to be gone, what does he do? They beg, can you please send us into the pigs? It's weird, weird stuff. And so Jesus says, okay, fine, go into the pigs. And a herd of 200 pigs, the demons go into them, they run off the cliff, and they drown in the water and they die. Every time I read that, I'm like, what in the world is that all about? Why would they want to go into pigs? And why does Jesus let them? And why do they rot off the cliff and die? What's the deal with all this? One of my seminary professors said, it's just, it, 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 just a simple explanation is Jesus wants to show the nature of the kingdom of Satan. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. And his first choice is to kill people. But if he can't have that, the nature of Satan is to just want to kill and to destroy. And so they go into the pigs and they, and they die. And so we see in the life of this boy the way that Satan wants to work. And a lot of us would say, hey, you know what? That's cool, but that doesn't happen today. That doesn't happen today. And I would venture to say that you have bought into what Verbal Kim says in The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Now, you could believe all you want that there's no such thing as a devil, but you will do so to the same demise as the emperor who thought that he was wearing clothes. There's a spiritual battle that's going on and it's being fought on the battlefield of this boy's heart and his body and it's being fought on the battlefield of every human heart. And Satan is fighting for our hearts to steal and to kill and to destroy. Whenever you see something being stolen, whenever you see someone being destroyed, he wants to destroy families, he wants to destroy marriages, he wants to destroy people's lives, he wants to destroy homes. This is how Satan works. I remember talking with a, a friend of mine and he, Satan disguises himself. He says he, the, the Bible says in, in one of the Pauline epistles says he masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't come with, uh, with, with, with horns and a pitchfork and say, I'm the devil and I'm going to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes in a subtle way. So one of my friends, you may have heard me talk about him. 
he was at a, a party, a birthday party for this girl named Kate. I think her name was Kate or something like that in seventh grade. And she was pretty and, and, and popular, preppy girl. And they went to her house for a birthday party. And a bunch of people were talking about something and they're making noise about something. And they said, okay, let's go into the closet. And so a group of people went into a closet with some board game. They went into the closet. And so he followed them in. They went in the closet. They pulled out what's called a Ouija board. A Ouija board is a satanic device through which Satan speaks and puts a foothold in the hearts of people who engage in these things. And they sell it at your local Target in the kids' section. And it's got this uh, triangle, and the triangle moves to spell out letters. And so they thought, okay, this is silly. This is just a child's game. And so they said, let's, let's, let's work it. And so they said, where are you? That's a question they asked the Ouija board. Where are you? And the board started moving, and it spelled out the letters H-E-R-E. It said here. And so these seventh graders were kind of like, some of them were not believing it. Some of them were saying, oh, this is kind of silly. You moved it yourself. And so they said, why are you here? And the Ouija board moved, and it spelled K-A-T-E. And at that point, they were flipping out. And so they said, get rid of that thing, and they ran out of that closet. Some of them were laughing. Some of them were scared. But my friend was there. He said that party over the summer of seventh grade came and went, and they went into eighth grade. And when eighth grade started, Kate, this preppy, blonde, beautiful girl, was no longer the same girl. She came into eighth grade. She was completely dressed in black. She was goth, black nails, everything about her depressed and dark. My friend said, if I didn't believe that the devil was real, then I believed it after I saw her. We have an enemy, my friends, who wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And some of Satan's best sermons are preached through the media, through the songs that we listen to, through the movies that we watch. He wants to destroy life. And it comes under the guise of just a movie. No big deal. It's just entertainment. It doesn't affect me. It's, there's no black and white. It's just all kinds of shades of gray. And families are being destroyed because they buy into the lie that it's okay. It's just a bunch of gals getting together and doing the things that gals do. And we buy into this sex in the city lifestyle that we can follow Jesus and yet still live however we want to live. Satan's best sermons are preached through the media, through the music, through the things that we listen to, and we need to wisen up because he wants to steal and he wants to kill and he wants to destroy not only you and me, but our generations to come as well. I believe because of pornography, they're saying studies, long-term studies are coming out saying that people who engage in pornography are no longer able to come to a place with a real person, their future spouse, to be able to have intercourse in order to have babies. And through that, generations are being destroyed. I think it's just the things that teenage guys do. It's just the things that teenage girls do. It's not. It's not. Because there is a spiritual battle going on. And if it's not, he's not for us, then he's against us. Satan wants to steal, to kill, to destroy. And that is your enemy and his mind the first thing that we see here. The second thing that we see that you can experience true life in Jesus uh, through faith and prayer. So they come and they bring the boy to Jesus. They say, here's the issue. 
I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And so Jesus gives this speech, unbelieving generation, how long should I put up with you? And he asks them this question. And then it says, Jesus says, do you believe? Right? Everything is possible for him who believes. Verse 24, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus saw a crowd was coming. He rebuked it. Spirit shrieks, convulsed him, came out, looked dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Why, why does the spirit shriek? And why couldn't the disciples cast out this demon? Why is it that Jesus caused such a violent reaction in the spirit, this evil demonic spirit? Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's kind of like, you ever, <laughs> I used to watch wrestling. I used to love wrestling when I was growing up, WWF. Um, and there would always be, you know, back in those days, I think today's wrestling, it's hard to tell who the good guys and bad guys are because they're constantly changing sides and making new alliances. But back in those days, there was a clear demarcation between the good guys and the bad guys, right? You tell by the way they dress, by the, you know, how nice they were and all that stuff. So good guys, I was always a fan of the good guys. And so there's always this good guy fighting against a bad guy. And there's, you know, typical, typical scenario. You've got a really strong, big, mean, bad guy, and you've got a really nice, like, sweet, kind, always, like, you know, talks about being good to your parents on the interviews, that kind of guy, but he's not as big, not as strong, not as fast, and he always loses. So you've got the, the, the good guy, and then you've got the bad guy. They're fighting each other, and the good guy gets crushed, right? Gets beat up, gets demolished, and he's, oh, he's, like, crying because he lost again, and, and the bad guy's gloating. He's, like, yeah, lifting up his, like, 50-inch biceps and gloating and staring at the guy. Aha, you stink, and I'm so much stronger than you. And, and then all of a sudden, while that's going on, music starts playing in the background. Ah, this is like music that you know is the music of Hulk Hogan or some great good guy champion. I am a real American. And then the crowd starts clapping and they start going crazy. They're like, yeah, yeah. And then the bad guy looks up and he's like, he looks around. He's like, oh my gosh, I've, I've met my match and I've got to pick on some of my own size. And he gets scared and he looks around and, and then Hulk Hogan comes down the alley and he's pointing at him. He's like, pick on someone your own size. And, and he comes down and he starts beating him up and punching him. And, and the guy gets beat up so badly that he gets out of the ring and he runs away and he, he runs back into the, into the locker room. That's kind of what's happening here. You've got this mean devil, and he's picked on this defenseless kid, and he's gloating over it. And then here comes the music as they come down the mountain, and Jesus enters into the fray. And as he speaks up, the devil starts trembling, and demons start fleeing at the name of Jesus. Why? Because there is no other way to overcome the work of of the enemy. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. First John chapter three, verse eight says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. See, the, the problem with the disciples is that they're trying everything that they can in order to cast out the demon, but they're failing to realize that they can't do it. The only one that comes and realizes their weakness is the Father. And so he comes and he says, if you can do something, 
pity. And Jesus says, if you can, he's like, you know who you're talking to? If you can, are you serious? Then he says, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy father says, I, this is great. I think this is so hopeful. Look at what he says in verse 24. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that where all of life is lived? We come in here on Sunday mornings. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? We sing that song. We're like, yeah, I believe it. I believe it with all of my heart. But then you think about your temptation that you cannot overcome, that you keep on slipping into. You say, but, but if he's for me, then why can't I overcome this? I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. There's no life apart from you. Jesus, I believe it because I've seen it. I've tasted it. I know it. I do believe. But at the same time, I want to go out and find life in alcohol and in girls and in boys and in drugs and in sex and in food. And in, I, I want to find, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. There's this tension and this is where we live. We live between this juxtaposition of, I believe with everything within, but help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus says, I'll take it. Because you remember, a little faith is a whole lot better than no faith. He says, lean into, press into that belief. Don't go to, don't gravitate towards those places of unbelief but move towards and lean into and throw yourself upon the areas in which you do believe. Because what Jesus says is everything is possible for him who believes. Now, again, here we get confronted with the same. I believe that. I believe that everything is possible because I saw these impossible things happen. But everything, is that really true? If everything is possible, then why didn't I get into that school? If everything is possible, then why did my grandmother go home to be with the Lord? If everything is possible, then why this, why that? Why aren't these things happening? What does it mean that everything is possible for him who believes? And why aren't these people changing if everything is really possible? In fact, why are they going backwards instead of forwards? Why if everything is possible? Is it because I don't believe enough? I think, again, there's hope for the weary soul here. Because I can think of at least two people who are recorded in Scripture whom I consider to be the two most significant people in the Bible who believe probably as well as anybody could believe, and yet they didn't get what their human eyes would have thought they should have got. So you have Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if it's possible, everything is possible. If it's possible, take this cup from me. Then you've got the apostle Paul who's got this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. And three times he pleads with God, remove this messenger of Satan from me. And both of these times, they're denied the things that they asked. Did they not believe properly? Everything is possible for him who believes. Either they didn't believe or our definition of everything is faulty. Could it be 
that when Jesus says everything is possible, it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Doesn't mean that we who have a 50 handicap are all of a sudden going to become a scratch golfer. Is that what it means when he says everything is possible? It doesn't mean that someone who stands four foot nothing is going to be able to dunk a basketball tomorrow. Is that what everything means? Or could it be that he means something else? When Jesus is talking about that which is possible, saying everything is possible is referring to everything that God calls you to do and to be in this life. Everything that he wills for you is going to be possible. In this situation, can this boy be healed? Everything is possible means either I will cast out that demon from him or he will remain with this demon and I will give you everything that you need in order to care for that boy in his time of need, in the condition that he's in. Either he will do what you ask him to do for you or as he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you in order that you might live with this ailment but be able to do so in grace and in strength and in power in order that you might accomplish the will of God for your life. It doesn't always mean that every sickness is going to be healed, but if it's not, then it does mean that God's going to pour everything into your life necessary for you to be able to stand up under that challenge in your life. It doesn't always mean that you're going to get in the school of your dreams, but it does mean that wherever you go along the road, that God's going to give you everything that you need, the grace and the power in order to live in the center and in the midst of the will of God for your life. If you believe, that's why Peter was able to walk on water. Everything is possible. Why? Because Jesus told him to come. And because that was the will of God for him, that was possible for him because he believed. And as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he was able to do that which was impossible. And so he's able to experience this kind of a life. Jesus says everything is possible for him who believes. Do you believe? How is your faith? Where is your faith? Do you trust him? Do you trust this Jesus who is altogether incredible and amazing? Do you trust him? Even when he doesn't give you the things that you're asking him to give you. This father trusted, he believed, and so he gained the reward of his faith. But the second thing, in line with that, not only is it faith, but in prayer. Why isn't it, why, why could the disciples not cast out this demon? It's even more, I mean, if we're going through a series on Mark instead of the, the a series on the miracles, it would make more sense to you. It would, it would heighten the tension because in Mark chapter 3, starting verse 6, 13, and then Mark chapter 6, the disciples did cast out demons. Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons, and they did. But here, they're confronted with this man and a boy. They try to cast out the demons, but they can't. And so they're, they're, they're confused and they're perplexed. They come to Jesus. They don't want to talk about it in public because they're embarrassed. But when they go into their own private room to talk about it, like, Jesus, what happened? Why couldn't we do it? There's something that happened, whatever, whatever way they're trying to do it. Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer. 
apparently the disciples had tried everything, whatever they tried to do. I don't know what they had done, but in chapter 3 and chapter 6, Jesus' authority had been given to them. And because of that, they were able to cast out these demons. But come chapter 9, they're no longer able to do it. Maybe they were trying to coax it out of. Just come on out, come on out. Maybe they're trying to reason it out. Maybe they're trying to beat it out of this boy. But whatever they did, it didn't work. And there's a danger that happens when we begin to think that we have become successful at doing something that we no longer lean into the power of God that is available to us in prayer. To them, hey, been there, done that. I've cast out demons before. I've preached a sermon before. I've led a Bible study before. I've been doing house church for three years. I've been leading worship before. And there's a danger that we begin to think that God's favor and grace working through us is God's favor and grace because of us. And the disciples began to become self-sufficient in thinking that we knew how to do this. But Jesus causes them to fail in the context of grace and help where they've got the safety net of Jesus because they know that when Jesus is gone, they're not going to be able to do it on their own or else the kingdom movement is going to die with these disciples. And Jesus says, and only come out through prayer. How do we experience? How do we help others? See, this is, this is where, when, with faith, we can experience the true life that Jesus promises to us. But how do we bring that life to bear in the lives of others whose lives are being stolen, killed, and destroyed? That's what the disciples' question is, isn't it? See, for you, if, if this is you, and you're the victim of satanic attack, demonic oppression, whatever it is, by faith you need to overcome in the name of Jesus and claim the authority of Christ. But if this is somebody else in your life, we are like the disciples. Jesus saying, how do we do this? And we've got to pray. And we've got to pray. How do we bring freedom to the captives in our Bible study classes? How do we bring cap- uh, freedom released to the captives in our house churches, on the mission field, in the persecuted church, how, how do we overcome? How do we pour strength? How do we see the kingdom of God come to bear in those situations? We can't do it unless we're plugged into Jesus in prayer. A few years ago, a couple years ago, Olivia asked our daughter, Manny, what she wanted for Christmas. And Manny was very little, maybe two, uh, two or three years old at the time, and she said, two things that I want I want a trash can, and I want a rice cooker. The reason she said that was because she looked at what her toy kitchen had and what her mommy's kitchen had, and the only two things that mommy had that she didn't have in her mind was, I don't have a trash can, I don't have a rice cooker. So that's what she wanted. And so she asked one of her aunties, can you buy me a rice cooker? And so um, this one auntie went and looked for a toy rice cooker, but found that there, there either wasn't any or they were really expensive. And so she bought Manny a real rice cooker, a little one, but a real rice cooker. Made sure we don't plug it in. And so Manny played with that rice cooker, and she loves that rice cooker. But when she goes to school, Elijah plays with that rice cooker. And so the other day, I don't know if Manny was at school or wherever it was, um, Elijah had put a bunch of toy food inside the rice cooker. And he came 
to me carrying that, that rice cooker. And he said, Daddy, Daddy, look what I made you. And he opened it up, and it was like this concoction of green beans and French fries and hot dogs and all kinds of stuff in there. I said, wow, Elijah, did you make that for me? That's so great. Thank you. And then he said, can I plug it in now? And I said, no. <laughs> you cannot plug it in. Do not ever plug that thing in. And he said, why not? I said, when you plug it in, Elijah, there's power that comes through it, and this thing is going to catch on fire, and you're, you'll never have your toys again. What was I telling? Here's what I was telling him. Let me, let me just kind of break this down as we come home for a conclusion. I said, listen, I am fine with you playing with that rice cooker. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't plug it in to the power. That's what Satan says to you and me also. You can do whatever you want. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you do. Satan doesn't care if we do prayerless missions. Yeah, go for it. Do your thing. Go preach the gospel at the ends of the year. Go do your thing. Do it without prayer. I'm fine. He's fine. He doesn't care. Yeah, do your prayerless preaching. That's fine. Stand up here, DL. Preach. Fine, but don't pray. That's fine. I'm not scared of that. Yeah, you do your prayerless house church leading. Do your prayerless party time. Prayerless praising. That's fine. You go do your thing. I don't care. But Satan trembles when you get plugged in to the power source that is Jesus and you begin to pray. He doesn't care that we do all of these things, but as soon as we pray, Satan begins to tremble. Parenting with prayer causes Satan to tremble. Teaching, shepherding, leading, serving, obeying with prayer causes Satan to tremble and causes the demons to run and flee at the mention of the name King of Majesty. Right? This is our God, and he's powerful. And he's not, Satan's not scared of us, but he's scared of our Father, and he's scared of our older brother, Jesus, whose name we bear. The power and the life that we can experience comes through faith and through prayer, and both of these things are essentially saying the same thing. Both of them are saying, listen, I am weak, but you are strong. I am lacking, but you have plenty. I am insufficient, but you are sufficient. I am empty, but you are full. I am weak, but you are almighty. And the clearest place where that comes in the place, not only in faith, not only in prayer, is at the cross. We kneel before the cross and we say, God, I have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Because at the cross, if there ever was a father whose heart was devastated over the condition of his children, right, this man is a mere shadow into the Father heart of God, who loved the world so much and saw us in our torment and our despair that he gave his one and only Son. And Jesus, unlike the boy, didn't just appear to be dead, but Jesus died. And Satan, like the bad guy wrestler, thought that he was a champ. But on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, breaking through the chains that held and enslaved him and that hold and enslave us. Fear, sin, guilt, shame, death, and broke through the tomb in everlasting victory so that that life might be given to you and me. Jesus died 
in order that we would be forgiven. But Jesus didn't rise again so that we could remain defeated, so that we could remain stolen, killed, destroyed. He came in order that we might be restored, might be resurrected, that we might live. He came to give us life and to give us life in abundance. And he holds out that hope for you and to me. And he says, by faith, by prayer, take a hold of this. Let's pray together. Two things simply today, guys. How has your life been a battlefield? And how is Satan stealing and killing and destroying from you? What are the habits that you've given into? Let's rise up and let's fight. Let's pray. Let's believe. Let's ask the Lord God. Let's ask others to help us. Let's get people to pray with us and for us. How are you being attacked by the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, give me victory. I believe. Help, me unbe- help my unbelief. Second, how are people that you love being fought for by Satan? How is he stealing, killing, destroying in their lives? Let's pray and ask the Lord God that he would grant them the victory as we pray for them. Not prayerless counseling, not prayerless advice giving, not prayerlessly giving them a book, but praying and seeing Satan flee. Let's make some prayers of commitment, surrender, asking the Lord that he would release the captives, that he would release us in order that the name of Jesus might be exalted in our lives. Let's pray together for a couple moments praying for yourself, praying for others in our lives. Let's pray and let's claim the victory. Let's pray for that victory by faith. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that even though there is a conflict being waged throughout the cosmos and has been from the beginning of time, thank you that we're not just mere pawns being beaten up and thrown into the ring, but thank you that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Thank you, Father, that in Christ we are victorious. Thank you that there is victory in the name of Jesus. And we claim that over your people. We claim that over your church. We pray that you would help us. That as we lift up prayer, as we stand on faith in the finished work of Jesus, may we believe that you will set the captives free. Help us not only to pray for that, but also to fight for that. To not just give in, but help us to stand up and to rise up in the fight for your glory and for our blessings so that we might experience the life that is truly life. 
break the chains of addiction, break the chains of temptation, break the chains of enslavement in our minds and in our actions and in our motives to lesser desires. Teach us to long for more of you and grant us the victory that we might pursue you with all that we have. We thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us all that we need to stand and fight. May we be victorious in living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.